Welcome back to Streamageddon, the holiday cheer podcast, as long as your definition of cheer is talking about TV, streaming, and all of those just delightfully related subjects, uh, kind of like finding a special gift under the tree. I'm your host, Chris Barlow. I came and snuck that gift under the tree, kind of like a home invader, but a jolly welcome kind. And I'm joined by the Dasher, Dancer, Donner, Blitzen, and hell, even the Rudolph to my Chris Kringle. See what I sort of did there? It's Diane Nora. Ah, onward, Diane. How you doing? Ho, ho, ho. I'm doing well. I am I'm... forcing so much cheer right now, Diane. Can you feel the forced cheer? Uh, it's It's got that awkwardness that one might hear on a Nathan Fielder show. Oh my gosh, that's so perfect, because coincidentally, we are talking about a Nathan Fielder show a little later in this episode. I thought you were going to go in a completely different direction and compare me to Tim Allen in The Santa Clauses, which apparently he hates being in and treats everyone like trash around. But I don't like Tim Allen, so we're not even going to cover that story this week. That's good because, you know, this is a an all-ages family-friendly podcast and it would be hard to describe him without cursing as Casey Wilson did. So We're talking about the curse, not cursing, about <laughs> the Santa Clauses. See what I did there. And that's how we're going to get into this holiday week episode. Uh, this week, we're going to do a tiny bit of news. We're going to talk about the curse, which is still airing on Paramount Plus with Showtime. And then... Next week, as a special, just end-of-year treat, it is our second annual Streaming Superlative Spectacular. Get excited! But first, get excited about this. And this, I think we just begin right now with some news. I promised we wouldn't do any news this week, but then, as uh, the world does, news happened anyway. And we're going to start this news with a tiny bit of follow-up. This this follow-up happened literally as I was preparing the notes for this episode, uh, because I was reminded, while looking at a banner ad on Deadline.com, about our recent discussion on bundles. And would you believe it, Diane, there is a cell phone company that really wants to get me in to yet another streaming bundle. Any guess what cell phone company that would be? Oh, is it Verizon Wireless? Gosh, it's Verizon Wireless, which we reported is going to offer an HBO Max, uh, I'm sorry, the Max app, plus Netflix bundle. And you thought, wow, what big news, Netflix willing to be bundled. Uh, But why bundle those two when you could bundle some other two? Because Verizon wants me to know that if I subscribe to Paramount Plus, I get one year of Netflix on them. That's not really a bundle so much as a weird one-year promo. And it's confusing to me because it seems to run directly headfirst into the pre-existing Max Netflix bundle we discussed. I don't know how you can do both of those things. There's too many Verizon wireless bundles. Agreed. And I suppose what I think is most interesting about this story is that Netflix seems like the standard. They've gone ahead and declared everyone wants Netflix. It just uh, depends what you want your Netflix with. Do you want your Netflix with Max? Maybe you want your Netflix with tossed salad and scrambled eggs and you're going to go with Paramount+. Plus. Right. And that's not the only way uh, Netflix has crept into the news this week uh, and not the only uh, company just throwing Netflix at you because Disney, 
uh, which we discussed uh, very recently in our last episode, the Disney synergy coming uh, into Hulu, by which I mean Hulu into Disney, right? Well, what if you didn't even need either of those services? Because what if Disney just licensed a bunch of the Hulu content to Netflix? Because everyone wants to throw something at Netflix. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, this kind of confounds me because don't they know that Netflix is their competitor? <laughs> they well, w- I, I would have said the same thing about the Max app, throwing HBO content at Netflix, but we've, we've discussed in the past why some of that might make sense. In this case, Disney, once again, like Max, is signing a non-exclusive deal with Netflix, which the idea there is, well, you'll get hooked on these shows on Netflix, and then you'll think, what else does that Disney company have to offer? I should go check them out. Or perhaps you'll at some point make the strange decision to cancel your Netflix and keep your Disney Plus. Again, there is a logic to this, but it is a shallow logic that I don't fully embrace. But the key is non-exclusive. So quickly... The list of shows, which Disney is non-exclusively licensing to Netflix, and the implication here is part of this is kind of a trade to get Grey's Anatomy onto Disney and Hulu, where previously Grey's Anatomy would not have been able to be in the new one-app Disney experience, which is what Deadline refers to it as, the Disney one-app. And I was like, Disney one? Is that another app? No. They mean that Grey's Anatomy will be able to be watched through the Hulu portal in the Disney Plus app. Follow me on this. And in exchange, Disney is non-exclusively licensing Lost, This Is Us, Prison Break, Archer, How I Met Your Mother, White Collar, Home Improvement, Tim Allen reference, The Resident, ESPN 30 for 30, My Wife and Kids, Reba, The Bernie Mac Show, and the recent Wonder Years reboot to Netflix. Sure. But Grey's Anatomy is an ABC show, originally, that was made by Shonda Rhimes when she had an overall deal with Disney. It's so confusing. That that she left to go to Netflix because Disney wouldn't give her passes to Disney theme parks, among other disputes. That was like a major one. And it's just so absurd. It seems like this sort of um, really short-term decision-making rather than looking at things for like the big picture. Um, I hope that they're like, wow, we really blew it with Shonda. I think many people in life just kind of wake up one day and go, wow, we really blew it with Shonda. They must. They really must. But that is uh, just just a nugget. The the deadline article, which might be how I wound up finding a, a banner ad for Verizon plus Netflix plus Paramount in my face tonight. That that link is in the show notes if you want to try to understand. Again, this is the headline from Deadline: All Grey's Anatomy seasons to be available on Disney One app. Semicolon. Netflix gets window on fourteen Disney series as part of licensing deal. Such a complex, strangely worded headline with a semicolon implying a tit-for-tat quid pro quo where Disney wants Shondaland in the Disney quote-unquote one-app experience so badly 
and maybe also wants some cash for a licensing deal so badly that they are willing to put a boatload of shows on Netflix non-exclusively for 18 months. Limited time deal. But thankfully, you might get a year of Netflix free with your Paramount Plus with your Verizon wireless subscription. Isn't streaming easy to understand? Oh, it's a breeze. Oh, you know what else is a breeze and easy to understand? The branding of Paramount Plus with Showtime, which happens to be the home of the show that we are going to discuss this week. So what better time than to look at a little piece of news that popped up about, yes, Paramount Plus with Showtime. Now, Diane, when you saw a headline today that said, shocking news, Showtime, the television network, is being rebranded as Paramount Plus with Showtime, did you have a moment of deja vu? I did. I was thinking, didn't they tell us that kind of recently? I suppose the the surprising part was not that they've told us, but when they told us. I was going to say, Diane, you are correct in every aspect of that except the word recently, because we did some deep research in our old show notes and realized that they told us this in January of 2023. We covered this in an episode in February where we reviewed Poker Face on Peacock. Number one, do you even remember reviewing Poker Face on Peacock? Number two, do you even remember Peacock? I peacock peacock and I peacock poker face, I'll have you know, more or less, to both. <laughs> so I, I do remember that we reviewed it. I Maybe I was under the impression that was indefinite or, or the folks at Paramount were under that impression. But um glad that the, the news that was leaked uh, back then continues to be true. Yes, and now it will finally actually be true in January of 2024. That was the news this week, which sent people into a tizzy about the end of Showtime. And and all I want to say is, hi, you could just listen to this podcast. We have been slowly winding up to the end of Showtime all year long. That is perhaps one of the themes of 2023, though there were a lot of more interesting and larger themes in 2023, so you are forgiven for letting that one slip through the cracks. Great news. You can bundle Streamageddon through your Verizon plan or your AT&T plan, whatever uh, phone service you have, because it's free. That's it's already correct. free. So you can just bundle it in um, with with Netflix or Max or if you peacock peacock bundle us with that because uh, it's already free. Just listen and then you'll know things 10 months ahead of schedule. I, truly, a whole year before they actually happen, you will know that the company involved has announced that they will happen. Oh, what a magical world of streaming this is. But speaking of magic, there's a magical little show, perhaps a bit of dark magic in this show, and that's the real focus for this week's episode. That that was a chaotic news segment. It might have felt cursed, if you will. But how appropriate, because we're going to talk about the Paramount Plus with Showtime original series, The Curse. Okay. 
Okay, phew, we made it. That was uh, some impromptu news uh, for your own delight, listener. I'm sure you found it as delightful and headache-inducing as we did. So relax while we tell you about a new show from Nathan Fielder and Benny Safdie starring a newly minted Golden Globe nominee, Emma Stone, end of list of Golden Globe nominations for this show, uh, called The Curse, which is on a network that you could get that is currently called Showtime, but soon to be called Paramount Plus with Showtime. But let's be real, if you're going to watch it, you're going to watch it on the streaming service, Paramount Plus, but specifically the version called Paramount Plus with Showtime, not to be confused with Paramount Plus with Showtime, previously known as Showtime. Okay, I did it again. I, I made it confusing again. I'm sorry. Was it you who made it confusing, or was it the Corp Overlords? We'll never know. And isn't that just the, the tickle of streaming? But, uh, Diane, tell me a little bit about The Curse. I, I should say spoilers uh, for the first two episodes. There are more than two available, but we want to keep this spoiler light. So we watched the first two for this uh, review. How would you describe this show, Diane? With some difficulty, to be honest, it's... It's a show that um, sort of straddles a few genres, I think. In some ways, it seems to be a satire of reality television, particularly um, the sort of home improvement genre of reality television. Uh, Nathan Fielder and Emma Stone play a married couple who are uh, creating a TV show that they hope they've got a pilot out and they hope that the pilot is going to get picked up to series um, as, as of the beginning of the show um, where they create new homes or they remodel homes and they're very interested in sustainability allegedly. And uh, they have a very uh, do getter do gooder, philanthropic angle to the show as well. And I think another aspect of the show is sort of a satire of uh, well-meaning white people. Yeah, that, that's actually a, a good note to end that description on, is it is a satire of the quote-unquote well-meaning white person, kind of uh, a white savior complex in some ways, but also the, uh, the HGTV white savior industrial complex if you will, the shows where mm. they come to flip a home, but for good. And if you followed some of the stories around those HGTV shows, many of them leave the participants in a kind of dire situation with a home that is half finished or one room was beautifully renovated and the rest is a wreck. Uh, they don't they don't care so much about the follow through on some of these shows, not to paint too broad a brush as they do about what looks good on camera. And certainly, especially Benny Safdie's character, who is the producer trying to help them get the show picked up by HGTV, he is this force of, I, I, want, I want it to look a certain way to sell it. And I don't care if it's fake. I don't care if it's uh, using somebody as a prop, basically. As we see in the opening minutes of the, the pilot episode... They're interviewing two local residents, uh, one of whom is an, uh, an older woman who has cancer and her son who's unemployed and been out of work. And they tell the son they've gotten him a full-time job at a new coffee shop opening in the town. And then they try to get an emotional reaction from the mother who is kind of whatever about it. But uh, Benny Safdie's character doesn't 
doesn't take that as the shot. He says, no, 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 we need to get a reaction from her to the point where he puts uh, menthol. menthol, thank you, in her eyes to make her tear up and to make her eyes a little red. And then they can get a shot again of them telling the, the mother and son, we got him a job. What do you think about that? All manufactured, all fake. And then we go on to discover even the coffee shop is kind of fake and manufactured. The rest of the staff for this grand opening are Australians who've been flown in and are not actually local residents and are not going to stay and work there. There's even an implication that the lease on the coffee shop only goes for like six months. And then who knows if they'll even keep it. Right. It's all kind of teetering on will this show get picked up or not. Another aspect of the curse, the TV show, is the relationships behind the scenes among the characters, particularly uh, the relationship between um, Asher and Asher is Nathan Fielder's character and and, and Whit, Whitney, uh, Emma Stone's character, and their friendship with Benny Safdie's character, who uh, has known Asher previously. But we learn a little bit more about his character in the second episode, which I found to be um, some of the most depressing content on, on a dark, dark show. And the way that I was saying before that the show is blending genre i think it seems like a show that was developed as a comedy and then they realized the content was not that was leaning more dramatic and so now it's um more of a, a dramedy but it doesn't have a lot of laughs which was surprising to me for a nathan fielder vehicle yeah, and in fact, uh, Safdie has said in an interview, I believe in Vulture, that they originally started the idea as a 30-minute comedy and that they realized as they were writing it that it was actually an hour-long dramedy. And and that that you feel that. The plot around their show within the show, the show they're making for HGTV, it does touch on some very dark cultural subjects societal subjects but ultimately a lot of it's goofy they make the ha the house that uh, they're living in that Whitney and Asher are living in in this community where they are in theory their pitch is we've moved into this community because we want to help renovate and revitalize this community and make it sustainable and make it artistic and gentrify it but in a good way and when you stack all that up you do see how silly that premise is the house they've mm. made for themselves has a mirrored exterior which looks ridiculous especially because they're in the american southwest there's not a lot of foliage around them so it's just mirrored reflections of the dirt the sand the sky cars and then also birds keep flying into it yes birds keep flying into it and we find out that that concept of the mirrored exterior is not necessary for the environmentally conscious elements of the home. They call it a passive home. And in one of the scenes in the pilot, again, an expert on passive homes points out it doesn't need to be mirrored to achieve this passive heating cooling solution. And they kind of brush that off. And then in the second episode, we find out the mirrored exterior is an idea that she, Whitney sort of ripped off from another artist. But 
you know, she she doesn't feel like she's in the same lane as that artist, so she doesn't feel like she was copying it. But in the same conversation, she defends it by saying, well, don't artists take inspiration from other artists? While we watch her in another scene delete comments on her Instagram saying that she copied it from this other artist. Oof. Yeah, it really is a show that um, shows us the ugly underbelly of... Um, TV personalities to that end to me it is an ugly show both visually and in content and I don't find it enjoyable to watch I'm not saying that I don't like it I because I am finding value in what I've seen of it so far uh, but I don't feel excited to turn it on and when I watch it I find myself grimacing in a way for me that's not an uncommon experience with the Safdie's work and sometimes with nathan's work um it's intense and they build up a lot of um tension and usually with the Safdie's, i find that there's like a very satisfying release of that tension at some point when it builds to some climax and with Nathan's work, there's usually the release of humor. And I'm not finding that release in this show. I'm just finding myself grow more and more tense. So often at the end of the episode, I feel like my my shoulders are like knotted. Yeah, That's how I'm feeling about the show. Are you enjoying it? Uh, I have a similar reaction that you do. I weirdly found the second episode a little easier to watch, even though the the interpersonal dynamics of a lot of the second episode were a bit cringier. But because mm -hmm. I knew the characters a little better by episode two and the plot was moving a little, not faster necessarily, but a little more... Uh, with more momentum, let's say, because they'd established the baseline from the pilot... I found the second episode easier to watch, but I am not racing to watch episode three right after that, because again, it, there, there is a lot of darkness. In particular, Benny Safdie's character, Dougie, the producer, <sighs> like you said, reveals this very dark story about uh, a, getting a DUI on a date with some local woman, and then while driving her home, he, he takes out his breathalyzer and fails his own breathalyzer. And then they have what is a really dark and uncomfortable scene where they, they then pull over and start to walk. Uh, he, he's driving her home. They decide to walk the rest of the way. And at the same time, it, it was kind of one of the most riveting scenes the show's had so far because it was awkward. They didn't say much at that point. She was trying to make it okay and kind of complimenting him in a way for um, having the self-awareness to stop driving when he failed his own breathalyzer, which is a pretty hollow compliment given that she asked him before they got in the car if he was okay to drive and and he brushed it off and made a joke about it but that awkward moment felt really real and very human in a way that some of nathan's most interesting work sometimes puts people in extremely human, awkward situations that are uncomfortable but fascinating. Reminded me of some of the best of The Rehearsal, a show we have talked about at length on this podcast. Uh, but, 
but this is fiction. And so there is a bit of a, a sense of maybe if Nathan's other work makes you too uncomfortable because he's using real people as the props. Here's a show that's completely fiction about a Nathan Fielder-like character using people as props, but you have the distance of, but this is fiction, so I don't have to wonder if this is, you know, okay or not. And I don't, that's that's a niche audience to me. Somebody who's like, yeah, I like the idea of Nathan Fielder's work, but I want it to be totally fiction, so I don't have to wonder if it's inappropriate okay, that's a very specific lane of discomfort that you would like to be in as a viewer, and this show can accommodate that. But I would always choose the rehearsal over this, at least so far, because, like you said, the rehearsal breaks the tension with humor and ultimately does the wise decision of really making it clear that Nathan is the the real flaw in that system, that he is the the problem. But... There's a similar vibe here that I don't quite think works as well. I agree. And I am hopeful that it will all be for something. It, it's early to say. Yeah, that that is the thing. Yeah. Is I'm hesitant to make such a broad judgment because we're only two episodes in. And I do want to see where it goes because when it gets more into their personal lives, I I am interested. They're interesting characters. I am and I'm not. Uh, since we've put out the spoiler alert, um, and also the, um, I don't know, cover your ears if you're a kid alert, I guess. But in the part of, uh, the first episode, there is a subplot about the size of Nathan Fielder's character's penis that feels like it was a joke that's, like, left over from when they thought this would be a comedy. It's not particularly funny and it just is, seems like a really hollow motivation for this character it's like oh like he's got all these emotional problems but it's really just because his penis is small and that just seems like a little bit of lazy boring storytelling when everything else is so complicated particularly when now that we know the background of benny safty's character nathan's character i'm like i i really hope that that's not where they're gonna land with him that he's just like insecure about his sexual prowess and so that's why he's such a schmuck like we we deserve a little better from him yeah i actually i'm glad you zeroed in on that because i found that uh, storyline to be maybe the weirdest and, and least enjoyable and I don't least enjoyable could still be interesting and intriguing but like I found it off topic and like it did reduce some of the depth of the character to a, a weird punchline a stereotypical punchline and what followed it was much more interesting, which is a sex scene between, uh, again, Asher and Whitney, played by Emma Stone, where where he's giving her oral... Well, no, he's giving her some kind of stimulation with a dildo of some kind or a vibrator of some yeah. kind. Uh, some and she, Yeah, she seems to be... Uh, they seem to be role-playing that the sex toy is another man. And, and they have an interesting, strange climax at the end of that. Uh, where she invites him, uh, Asher, to actually penetrate her. And, man, if you're listening with kids, 
we gave you a warning. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but he, she invites him to penetrate her, and he says, no, no, I want to hear Steven, the, the fake person, the fake third person in this sex game. I want to hear him get you off. And I found that moment really interesting, but kind of, like, ruined a little bit by the fact that it was set up by the small penis stuff which was completely unnecessary to make this much more interesting dynamic of, like, a couple that has an unusual sexual relationship that maybe neither of them are comfortable with. But it doesn't have to be about, oh, well, it's because his dick is small. It, it, there's so many more interesting angles to explore there. And in a way, I found that scene helped kind of salvage my feelings about the first episode, but it absolutely would have been better if it hadn't been colored by what led up to it. I agree with that. And I think it also reduces her complexity as a character because she's so interesting right now. And I think actually probably she's the redeeming part of the show for me. Um, the Every facial expression that she makes has layer upon layer and you can tell that this is someone who um is so mired in artifice that she's kind of lost even to herself and i find her really interesting and a fascinating indictment of um, the entertainment uh, complex yeah but if you know she's just not interested in her husband because of his genitalia she becomes a lot less dynamic to me of a human and and so i i, I hope they'll continue to steer away from that and i and i am optimistic that they will um but uh yeah yeah we'll episode see. episode two moves into a different direction it takes place a couple weeks after the first episode and she has uh discovered she's in the very, very early stages of pregnancy. And their dynamic around that is way more interesting. And and honestly, it seems to have no recollection of the small penis stuff from episode one. Maybe it'll come back later. But I, I, again, for like my interest in the show, I hope it doesn't. I hope that's just a joke that kind of got left on the cutting room floor, but it was in the pilot because of when they wrote the pilot. I don't know. And... Uh, th her depth is absolutely like reduced if it's about that but their depth when they're dealing with their their actual sexual dynamic their relationship dynamic she clearly isn't really ready for kids but he really is those are much meatier more interesting uh topics and they give mm. the characters so much more to do and uh, to get to your you know comments on Emma Stone she is killing it in this show. Maybe if there is, so good. yeah, like one reason I'll keep watching, it's she's so good. I agree that and and whatever sort of wig is on Benny Safdie's head <laughs> is that type of horrifying that you can't look away from. Um, it's a a slow motion train collision, but I'm intrigued. Yeah, it, if you are a viewer who enjoys or who finds it necessary to have a character you can relate to or someone you like on a show, I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is not the show for you. If you're someone who finds discomfort intriguing as a viewer, this might be your jam. 
Yeah, and actually, to speak to the idea of discomfort being a real focus of the show, I think what they're trying to do in the first episode with the small penis plot is it, it doesn't just come, it in fact doesn't come out between Whitney and Asher. It comes out between Whitney's father and Asher. And we discover that Whitney's father has a small penis and has, through the grapevine of Whitney and her mother, learned this about Asher. And he tries to bond with his son-in-law over this. And that is clearly deeply uncomfortable for Asher. And I believe the point of that is to show his discomfort to put Asher in this extremely uncomfortable situation. I don't think it's successful, but I do think it's not meant to be a cheap joke. It's meant to be a funny thing that makes him extremely uncomfortable and highlights that discomfort because it is a show about people who aren't comfortable in their own skin. Agreed. I also think that they were going for an element of shock value. And I mean, they show a prosthetic penis on the show. So I, I, I mean, I think it is shocking to view. But in a way, to me, its shock value had a lot less dividends than, say, um, seeing Benny blow into the uh, breathalyzer in the second episode. While driving. Like, while, while driving. While driving. After having, you know, acknowledged some some things about his past. So that, yeah, I, it's, um, I really, really want to like it. And maybe that's just because I'm such a fan of all the artists involved. So I'm giving it more of a grace period than I would normally. But uh, so far, it's not my favorite show. But I'm very excited about what it wants to do and what it's critiquing. Yeah, and again, to the, the satire element of it, the commentary element of it, is still kind of coming to the surface. It, it's set up pretty clearly in the pilot, and we haven't even gotten to, in the pilot, the titular curse. The moment of the curse is a moment where Asher is uh, in a parking lot, like outside a, 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 a restaurant of some kind, or maybe a strip mall, and... Uh, Benny Safdie, Dougie is there with him, and they see a little girl selling uh, cans of soda, uh, you know, uh, for cash uh, to make some money. Again, because this is a, a community in the Southwest that's pretty impoverished. This is, you know, they're trying, again, to be these sort of white saviors coming in. And that's definitely how Dougie is framing it for his footage for HGTV. And so Dougie says to Asher, go buy some of the soda. Give her some money. I'll get a shot of it. And uh, Asher says yes, because you can tell he's a bit of a pushover. He doesn't like to say no until he aggressively says it sometimes awkwardly. Uh, and he goes and he, he looks in his wallet and he only has a $100 bill. And so he gives the girl the $100 bill on camera, walks away, gets a thumbs up from Dougie that they got the shot. And then he goes back and asks for the $100 bill back and says, I'm going to go get change. I'll give you 20 for the whole six pack, but I, I can't give you the 100 and that is when she curses him. The little girl curses him. He tries to go and get 
cash from this ATM anyway in a, a, a funny but very awkward scene where a local is trying to tell him oh, the ATM needs a little like you give it a nudge you hit it on the side it's it's you know a, a janky little ATM tell me your your pin code I have to push it in the right way and hit it at the right time and obviously Asher does not want to give this guy his pin code which was a moment I found very relatable because like of course you don't want to give a stranger your pin code but the context is so much more loaded because here's the you know the quote unquote rich guy with nothing but a hundred dollar bill in his wallet and he's afraid that this you know local dude at the coffee shop is going to steal his pin code and clearly they're all feeling that that feeling from him and that you can tell that he's making it worse with his discomfort and there are moments like that mm-hmm. where if you're into that kind of discomfort you're gonna love this show but I, I, it's it's uncomfortable it is yeah and again maybe what will maybe there'll be a payoff that will make this discomfort worth it i um certainly found with uncut gems that the way that the tension escalated and then paid off for me in that film was extraordinary did i find it an enjoyable viewing experience I don't think so. I probably had a near heart attack. But at the end of it, I was like, wow, this is one of the most compelling pieces of art I've seen in years. So I'm hoping that this will reach, you know, maybe not that level, but like something more satisfying. I'm I'm just not sure yet. Uh, For me, this is a a jury's out thing, but one that I'm definitely going to keep watching. I think that's an interesting comparison there, Uncut Gems being a a safty movie. And I wonder, is that kind of discomfort journey easier in a movie where it Mm -hmm. all resolves in a single viewing? Where here, it is a challenge to get excited for another episode, to brace yourself for that. Yeah, I wonder if I'd waited until the whole show was out and tried to binge it, if I might find it easier viewing. Um, I'm not sure because I don't know what's going to come. And when I think about what's going to come, it does make me again, like I, I, I feel like a unease in my stomach. Which they, they do want you to feel uh, from a direction oh, yeah, it's perspective. Successful. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, the thing is, that's not a miss. That is what they want you to feel. All of the visuals are ominous. Things that should just feel, be very ordinary if you described them are shot in an extremely ominous way. There is a scene uh, at the end of the first episode where briefly we see Asher and Whitney through a peephole in like a, a hotel room door at the hotel Dougie is staying at and and has uh, Whitney there from time to time recording like B-roll uh, uh, audio, dialogue, ADR. And, and that... So strange, because you wonder, is that Dougie watching them have this little marital dispute through the peephole? Is that just meant for us to feel like voyeurs the way that they're being voyeurs to this community? Not not clear and intentionally not clear, just there to give you that disturbing perspective. Yeah, right now. And maybe that clarity will come. I don't think that the show would necessarily be less successful if that clarity never came. But um, I am finding myself anticipating a payoff. And maybe that's that tension that they're playing with. But like, I don't don't know. 
I don't know either, but I do know that Emma Stone is killing it and deserves that Golden Globe nomination for it. It is not hard for me to see why she's the one who got a nomination out of this. And to your point earlier, her her face acting, for lack of a better word, <laughs> is is doing so much work here. And it there is a moment in the second episode. She is trying to suck up to the local community, to a Native American elder, and to an artist friend who the, every scene they have together, you wonder, are these people really friends or are you acquaintances? And Whitney really wants to be friends with you and milk that friendship for some kind of clout. And uh, there's a moment at this artist's uh, gallery op- uh, event, which admittedly could be played for more laughs than it is. Some of the art that she's showing is uh, questionable. Uh, in particular, some like uh, MLB paraphernalia that part of the artist, she stole each one. She didn't make any of it. She just stole these figurines from different baseball fields. And that is the art. Which, sure, in a way, like, the thing is they don't really play it for laughs, so you're left to wonder, is that a joke or is that just a, a statement? I, and honestly, I don't care. What what matters in that scene is you can tell that Whitney is really trying to be accepted and part of this group and trying to feel impressive there. She invites this local Native American leader and tries to be the kind of conduit to introduce him, to give herself a greater sense of importance or or value in this artistic world. And there is a final moment in that sequence where um, her artist, quote-unquote, friend, who's part of this is a, a performance art installation inside of a little uh, tent where she cuts some deli turkey and then offers it to the person in the tent and if when they eat it she screams and goes why did you do that on the surface like okay i get that that's like some maria abramovich-esque stuff uh but uh, at the end she's dropped that facade the artist she's chatting with her friends and whitney comes in and tries to kind of insert herself in that friend group conversation and she gets a few words in and then they sort of move on and the camera really focuses in on emma stone and shows just a rapid series of expressions on her face as she darts her eyes around looking for someone basically to acknowledge her or engage her but they're having their friend group moment and she's just there now and and that I found upsettingly relatable as somebody who has spent a lot of time around artistic people and theater events and people trying to both make friends, but be important, but feel artistic, but get one up on the other artistic people. That mishmash of emotions just flowing over Emma Stone. And if you're just a connoisseur of that kind of like craft in an actor, you might love this show purely for that. Agreed. I also think that that art piece that that they're going to see as a useful foil for the show, because it doesn't tell you how you should feel about it or how you should feel about them. And it is one of those things where you're like, I don't know, is it good? I, I, I think I get the point, but maybe it's deeper than I think. Am I trying to make it more deep? Uh, you know, like, am I... It, if it were more accessible, would it be better? Like, is the fact that I'm uncomfortable enough for this piece of art to be successful? Uh, And I think that that's where Asher is landing at the end of that episode. And I think in that sense, that's very effective television because 
I'm sitting there with that same feeling. Yeah, actually, really well said. Uh, and uh, what a, a good note to end this little discussion on, because it is a show of both really interesting, exciting moments that I would want to revisit like that, and others that I never want to rewatch again. And that is, in some ways, Nathan Fielder, Benny Safdie, in a nutshell, but uh, here in a in a different way than we've experienced before, especially with Nathan Fielder's work. And so I, of course, would be curious, listeners, have you watched The Curse? Are you excited about the idea of being uncomfortable week to week? Do you think it needs to be a binge? Do you think you don't want this at all? Or will you do anything to see Emma Stone's award-winning face acting? I know I would. <laughs> tell us about it. Podcast at streamageddon.com. And tell us what your favorite shows of the year were. We're going to discuss some of ours next week with the annual streaming superlative spectacular. Are you excited, Diane? Oh, I am overjoyed. I am too. And I'm so overjoyed. I'm going to go prepare right now. So you know what you need to do in the meantime, dear listener? Say it with me. Keep streaming. Man, if you're listening with kids, we gave you a warning. I'm so sorry. <laughs>